you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So starting 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, and then we're going straight through chapter 17 as well. Okay. So, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. 
He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the, or the, word of the, Lord from your mouth is the truth. Uh, let's pray and then let's have a look at this great passage together. Sovereign Lord, ruler of the whole earth, the God of time, We thank you that as we look back to your deeds in the past, we thank you for the way that it helps us look forward to the way that we should live and, of course, ultimately to the great coming of your Son. And we pray that as we look at this passage together, you would indeed help us, enrich us and teach us the things you would have us learn. And we pray this for the sake of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, and I feel like I can call you that now that I've been interviewed, but uh, friends, welcome to the chaos and the comfort that is the story of Elijah. Uh, Today, we're going to be jumping in, uh, witnessing the battle of the gods, and if you open up your booklet and have a look at page three, you'll see my exhaustive outline there. Uh, As we go through this passage together, we're going to be asking the question, how do you survive in a post-Christian world? And of course, we're going to be asking this question because, as I'm sure you're all aware, we live in a rapidly changing world. I mentioned my oldest boy, Tim, is at university. He's 19 years old, and the world has changed somewhat from when I went to university. When I went to university, when I rocked up at Sydney, the big smoke, I was so excited because unlike the little town I came from, Sydney actually had four TV channels back when I went to uni. It was so cool. They had this thing called SBS. And what you could do is you could actually change the dial on the TV, no remote, you could change the dial and you had four options. It would just blew my mind. And of course, when an assignment was due, it was actually due back in my day. We actually had to handwrite our assignments and we put them in a little box that was locked. And if you were there after it was locked, that was just it. There was no crying home to mum because there was actually nothing a letter from mum could do back then. The world was a very different place. Mobile phones were around. I'm not quite that old. They were so cool. They were fitted in a really handy carry case, about the size of two bricks, uh, and the battery would last most of an hour. So, you know, the world was really changing when I went to university. A little different now. But the world is actually probably a little different for you as well. So put your hand up if you're 25 or older, you know, something around that mid-20s or older. Did you know when you probably first signed up to Facebook, there were only two options as to the gender? If you signed up to Facebook 2013 or previous to that, your only option were male or female. Come 2014, there were 20 options. Then the following year, there were 72 options. And I've lost track of how many there are now. We live in a rapidly changing world. And the world is not only changing in the form of technology, it's not only changing in the online space. You guys all know that. It's changing in the real world space. So much so that earlier this year, my job 
was to go to school, to my daughter's school, and sit down with my daughter's drama teacher, who was a lovely lady and professes to be a Christian, and explain to her and the head of the arts department how a play that made a Bible-believing Christian look like a jerk could actually make my daughter feel discriminated. They were doing a play in my daughter's class. She's in Year 10. She's in the Drama Excellence Program. And the play was all about overcoming discrimination. And so all of the different LGBTIQ characters overcame the evil, oppressive forces in their life. Some were police officers, some were dads. And one, Jack, was the Christian jerk. And he was a particularly evil character, and so this needed to be discussed in the class, because what he believed was in a God who actually promoted the idea of hell and judgment. And Jack, as he was helping his friend wrestle through this idea of sort of coming out, Jack said, you know what, this is not what God's into. He's actually against your sexual practices, and your sexual practices are going to have consequences. And the Christian teacher, the Christian drama teacher, chatted through with the class how dangerous it would actually be if someone let their religious ideas, and particularly these old-fashioned ones, actually come into the classroom. And have you ever seen that kind of bigotry or discrimination in your world? Now, I didn't need to tell my daughter that message was against you. I didn't need to tell her your thoughts and your ideas about Jesus, they're not welcome here. And if you want class to go well, you better keep your mouth shut. But what I did have to do was explain that to the teacher. And the teacher was genuinely horrified. Had no idea that that sort of play would actually make anyone in her class feel uncomfortable. The idea of having a go at a biblical Christian and someone being offended to her was about as anathema, as unthinkable, as actually having a go at white supremacy and actually having a kid in your class be offended. That's the world that we live in. The change is just so rapid that we are already thought to be dinosaurs of the past that you're better off without. But of course, you'd be mistaken if you think this is the first time in God's world that the world has rapidly changed. If you just flip back a couple of chapters in your Bible, if you go back to 1 Kings 11, what you'll see is you'll see the height of Israel's self-expression when they lived under uh, King Solomon... They were living in God's place, under God's rule, with God's king. The tabernacle, that sort of tent they took around to worship God, it was now the permanent building of God. It was the temple, and the worship of Yahweh was enshrined, uh, enshrined rather, in this secure nation. Only a couple of chapters later, less than 50 years, less than two generations later, everything has changed. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 29. That's why we started there. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Have you already noticed the catastrophic change? One nation, chapter 11. Chapter 16, two nations. Now, I know we all joke about Victorians not really being Australians. Maybe for you it's Tasmanians. For me, personally, it's South Australians, because they're the proof Tasmanians can swim. But whatever it is for you, (laughs) can you actually imagine what it would be like to live through a civil war where we become two nations? That's a pretty dramatic change to get your head around, isn't it? But, of course, it's more than that. Verse 30. 
Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those who were before him. And of course, he, he follows the classic sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who actually institutionalized the worship of false gods or worshiping God in a false way. But Ahab takes the cake because, as we keep reading, well, he married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, the Old Testament is a cracker of a read. It's really well written. It points out what you want, uh, the things you need to know. Some are a little hard to see because of the language thing, but Ethbaal, that name is literally just with Baal. Jezebel's dad was known as with Baal, and that seems to be the journey or the chosen career of her life. She wants to make Israel, the people that she's married into, she wants to make them with Baal. Now, let's put this in context. Can you imagine if you, you know, for whatever reason, maybe you go to Northern Ireland like everyone else or whatever it is, you, you go over there for the next 50 years, but you want to come back, you want to see the homeland and you want to see City on a Hill. So you come back in 50 years time to a church camp and you rock up and you expect, sure, there might be a few more lights, but pretty much most things won't change. And yet not only have things changed to the extent that they're now worshipping a foreign god, they're worshipping a foreign god and outlawing the practice of worshipping the Jesus you want to worship. Can you even get your head around what that must have been like? This is the dramatic change that's going on in Israel. It's because Israel, under Jezebel's influence, are actually being, well, not just encouraged, but enforced to worship Baal. Now, who's Baal? Baal is the fertility god of the Sidonians. He's a little bit like the face of agriculture because what Baal supposedly did is that he would die uh, annually. He'd submit to Magog, the god of death, only to be reborn in the springtime uh, and that was symbolised through the rain and the wind. He was the god of seasons, the god of fertility. And so they actually thought of Baal a little bit like the way we think of insurance today. It's only stupid young men who actually can't be insured because they're too risky that don't do that. You know, it's just a risk you don't take not to take out insurance. And they thought the same with Baal. He's the god of the seasons. He's the god of fertility, reproduction. So if you live in an agrarian society, if you grow crops, animals, you really need this god to be on side. And so what you can do is you can actually sort of coax him into kicking off the seasons, he's into fertility, so how do you coax him into it? Ritual sex with prostitutes, you kind of get him in the mood. Or negatively, if you've upset him, you can appease his anger through sacrifice. That's a very different God, isn't it? Again, imagine 50 years from now coming back to this church camp and there is institutionalised ritual prostitution in the service of a pagan deity. That's rapid social change. So how do you live in a post-Yahweh culture? Well, that's Elijah. Let's have a look at Elijah in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is my God, that's who he is, that's who he stands for. The Tishbite of Tish, uh, Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
Now, if you're lucky enough to know your Old Testament off by heart, you would instantly realise that except by my mouth, it literally is uh, in Hebrew, except by the mouth of my word, you would actually know them's fighting words. The last 20 plus times the phrase except by the mouth of have been used in the Bible, it's except by the mouth of the sword and it's been said by a warrior who has come to inflict destruction. What's Elijah doing? He's charging head on in against the enemy with his sword except by the words at the edge of my mouth and he is declaring war as God's servant on Baal. How is he doing that? He is threatening to take away the very realm, the very influence of Baal. What's Baal the god of? The god of seasons, the god of wind, the god of rain. What's Yahweh doing? He's declaring war, except by my word, no influence, no rain, no wind, no activity from Baal. And you could be mistaken for thinking that what Elijah then is just run away, you know, throws a stone and then gets out of there. But that's not what's happening at all because what God is doing through removing Elijah is removing any access now to the wind or the rain. No wind, no rain till Elijah speaks and then Elijah disappears. There is going to be nothing. Everything that you hope for from Baal is going to be taken away from you. And of course, it gets even more exciting. Verse 4, God has commanded that even the ravens are going to care for Elijah. Now, once upon a time, I was a microbiologist. The idea of a bird that just eats dead things, bringing you your food, that doesn't really do it for me. But you can see what God is doing, can't you? Fertility is Baal's realm. He's meant to be able to kickstart the season where the animals reproduce. But here is God just speaking and controlling everything he's made. The seasons, the wind, the rain, the animals, and of course, this is a type scene. We're going to see a few of them. A type scene, it's just one of those things that lets you know what's going on. It's a little bit like the Aussie three men walk into a bar. When I say that, you know there's going to be a joke. And a type scene in the Old Testament is a scene that keeps being repeated. So you just get the heads up. I should pay attention right now. Someone is being miraculously fed in the desert. Think Moses, think Jesus, think Elijah. Something big's about to go down. We're about to witness the battle of the gods. And so as we get to the end uh, of verse 6 into verse 7, the scene is set, the battle's on, but we actually then get to see the problem that our chapter is going to revolve around. Has God kind of maybe backed himself into a corner here? No rain, no wind. How's he going to keep his servant Alive, And you get the, the sense of the problem there in verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. What's God going to do? Is he going to run? Is he going to cower? In fact, he's going to do exactly the opposite. He's going to charge. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath. Now, whenever you read something in the Bible you don't need to know, you really need to know it. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Now, if you were told, all right, today, uh, you know, church camp, it's going to be at Mapleton, it's right near the Sunshine Coast, which is in Queensland. You guys don't need to know that. You're locals, you know the terrain. Why are we told which belongs to Sidon and dwells there? Well, because that's where Ethbal is king. That's where Baal is worshipped. God has made life hard for him. He's cut off the the wind, the rain. There's no water around. And yet he sends his servant into the heartland of the enemy. 
He's not done with the attack yet. So how how is he going to care for his soldier as he invades this foreign land? Well, of the most unlikely of uh, means, verse 9, behold. Now, again, behold's not even really a word. It's actually a made-up English word to represent this thing in Hebrew, a hine, which is really just an exclamation mark. Now, what I love about the ESV is it's really boring to read and it keeps these words coming through, which is great, because whenever you read the word behold, and we're going to see it a couple of times, uh, that's the author letting you know ahead of time, look, something's about to happen, and if you've been asleep, now's the time to wake up. It's about to get real. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, at one level... Asking a widow for food in a drought, it's like asking a New South Welshman for a fresh idea. Like, you know, it's just... (laughs) Of all the people you could have chosen, why did you go there? But that's kind of the point, isn't it? Behold, someone with no resources behind them, that's going to be the person I keep you alive through. Can you see how this is just underscoring? It's almost God flaunting his ability to keep his man alive wherever he chooses But how is it all going to work? Verse 10. Now, verse 10 is really about as subtle as a first-year uni student who's in love. (laughs) You know, you see these guys come to university just looking like slubs. They see the one, all of a sudden it's Lynx Africa everywhere. It's new, (laughs) just, you, you can smell it a mile away. Verse 10, for starters, when we get to there, where everything's happening at the city gates. Now, the city gates, old school, Old Testament, that's the equivalent of the courthouse. You go there when a big decision is going to go down. And this big decision, this big event, of course, we get another behold there in verse 10. Uh, We're meant to pay attention. And again, we get another type scene. This is just classic Old Testament, listen up kind of stuff, because this scene where God's man and the hopes of God's people are going to be kept alive by a foreign woman giving them water, well, that's happened all before. In Genesis 24, God has given promises to Abraham, you're going to be a great nation, beside the fact that you're really old and you've got no kids. And eventually he has a kid, he has Isaac, but of course Isaac doesn't have a wife, he's going to need someone. So Abraham sends off his servant, the servant sees Rebekah and then prays, Lord, if this is the one... Give her a favourable disposition towards me and let her water my, uh, my uh, camels. Let her keep me alive with water. A foreign woman providing water for the servant of God. We've seen that before. And that's what goes on. And so Elijah comes up to this lady and gives her a command. It's interesting. God said, I've commanded. And then Elijah commands. little interesting moment of um, doctrine of scripture there. But for now... Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink, says Elijah. And a little bit like a kid who's just trying to see how far he can push things. As she wanders off, he then backs it up and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And with that, here's where things get sad. But they actually, if you like, show us really the human side of what's going on here. Her reply is, as the Lord Your God lives. What an extraordinary thing for a foreigner to say. As the Lord, your God lives. 
lot of Moses, Elijah riffs that are going to go on here. In the time of Moses, God demonstrated to the world through these amazing acts that there is only one God and the God of Israel is the true God. And that's the message that's been received even in the heartland of Baal. As the Lord, your God lives. This should be a moment for celebration, but listen to what life is like under Yahweh. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little of oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a cup of sticks so that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and we may die. I can't share, I've got nothing. We live in a post-Christian world. Do we live in a post-Christian world because maybe my drama teacher is right or my daughter's drama teacher? Maybe Yahweh really is just like all the other gods. What's life like for this woman now that Yahweh is usurping uh, his right over Baal? She's starving to death. Does God care? What is life going to be like for her seeing Yahweh is in control? And again, it's extraordinary, Yahweh's response through Elijah is actually a command. She's down and out and she's given a command. But of course, the commands of Yahweh are always concessions. He tells you what to do, but he tells you what to do for your good. And here's what he says, verse 13. Don't fear, feed me first, and then feed yourself and you will live. Now, don't forget the context. This is a starving woman. Don't fear... Feed me first, then feed yourself, and you will live. You see, fundamental to Christianity is actually serving God first for your own sake. You serve God so that you can live. It's a picture of what life is like when Yahweh is in control. Verse 15, and she went and she did as Elijah said, And she and her household ate for many days. Isn't that extraordinary? Now this actually happened. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. This is Yahweh's attack on Baal. He has sent his warrior into Baal's territory. He has stripped Baal of all his control over his world and he's managed to keep his servant alive. And that's really where the chapter should end unless we want to further find out what does it look like to live in the land once Yahweh is in control? What's it like for the locals? Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. Now, what was the irrelevant information in that sentence? The mistress of the house. The son of the woman. What woman? The only woman in the house. We don't need that any further clarified. Remember, whenever there's redundant information, it's never redundant. The mistress of the house became ill. Now, again, it's a little bit hard to see this, unless, like me, you've been put through the torture of four years of learning Hebrew. But uh, the mistress of the house in Hebrew is actually just the word for Baal, Baal, with a feminine ending, Baalaha. Why is that important? Well, it does mean the mistress of the house, but actually it's a really clever play on words because who is it that's become ill? It's the son of the woman, the son of Baal, has become ill. Can you see the way the author is trying to connect the son with Baal? 
And even more so, what happens is once he becomes ill, is that there is no breath left in him. I actually think a better translation would be there's no breathes left in him. Because there is a word in the Old Testament for wind, for spirit, for breath. Really important word It's the word ru'ah. The Holy Spirit is the ru'ah, the wind of God, the spirit of God. But that's not the word here. When he ran out of wind, he actually ran out of the thing, the word that we use to describe the movement of air, the breeze. It's, It's not the breath that runs out. It's the breeze. Why is that important? Because Baal controls the wind. And as Baal's influence on the land is waning, we're asking the question, are the people worse off? Because as Baal, as the breeze leaves, the sun becomes ill, he can't breathe, there's no air, what's it going to be like? And the woman sees it for exactly what it is, verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring the sin of my son in remembrance and to cause the death of my son? She knows that Yahweh is into justice. And she knows that her son is guilty. This is a foreigner who knows that the son actually doesn't deserve life before Yahweh. She thinks that judgment has come. Now, there's a theme we're going to come back to. But what is life like? Listen to Elijah's response. Give me your son. Again, it's a command, but God is always gracious with commands. And then he prays, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now I mentioned before when it comes to Baal, if you want to get Baal to do your bidding, then you can either kind of get him into the mood or you can placate him through sacrifice. But you do something, you can manipulate him. What does Elijah do when he wants God to just go next level with his power? He just asks. You can't manipulate him. You can't make him. He's not that sort of God. And, and it's, almost, it's almost as if the Bible wants you to draw a parallel between the number three, he asked three times, and a resurrection. I mean, how cool would it be if later on in the Bible, the number three, like a true God or something, where all of the fullness of God worked together over three days maybe to actually resurrect a son, but not any son, not an Esbaal, not a son of Baal, but like a son of God, like a Jesus. How cool would it be if what we're getting here is a little glimpse as to how God is actually going to deal with all the gods of the world later on? But that's too fanciful, isn't it? Three times, let his life return. And the life of the child came into him again, in verse 22. And he revived. Why? Because God listened. He heard. He took compassion. And listen to the testimony of the foreign woman, the widow. Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth... And that it's true. We've been witnessing the clash of the titans as two gods have gone at it. But really, we only saw one god, didn't we? We just saw one god speak. We saw him strip away the power of the false god. We saw him invade his land, take away his powers, claim his people, and then resurrect them. The very first coming back from the dead that you actually see in the Bible is a foreigner. 
is a sinful foreigner who knows that they should be guilty, someone outside of the promise of the people of God, a Gentile, maybe even something like an Aussie who was given hope, how cool would it be if eventually the Bible was actually the message for everybody where even the foreigners who did not grow up under the rule of Yahweh were actually going to be welcomed into the people of God. But of course, that's getting ahead of ourselves. But for now, now we need to know this. How do you live in a post-Christian world? You learn the lesson of 1 Kings 17. There is such a thing as a post-Christian world. There's such a thing as a post-Yahweh world in the sense that the people of Yahweh, the people who were once Christians, may very well turn their back on God. They may very well walk away. They may very well bring about massive social changes that make real differences to the real people of God. But what this chapter reminds us is that while there may well be a post-Christian world, there is just simply no such thing as a post-God world. There's just not. There is one world where whether or not the people listen to the true and living God, they're still just God's world. And at will, with one man, this God can invade the enemy's stronghold, plunder them, humiliate them, take the lowest of their people and elevate them and restore them and give them life. Colossians 2 verse 13 puts it like this, and you, you were dead. See the 1 Kings 17 reference? You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The dead guy in 1 uh, Kings 17 was literally uncircumcised and his mother even accredited his death to his sins. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your heart. Your heart was just opposed to God. There was nothing in you that was actually reaching out to God with all this love and generosity and God just looked down on you and just saw this beautiful, almost newborn infant, just pristine and lovely. There was none of that going on. Your heart was against him. Your flesh was against him. It was at the moment when you were actively worshipping Baal God made you alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. How did he do that? He cancelled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. But here's the exciting bit, verse 15. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. You see, what God did with Elijah... That was just the first battle. That wasn't the whole wall. That was just the first excursus into the enemy territory to actually claim something back. But with Jesus, he doesn't just claim the neighborhood. He claims the world. Disarming the rulers and the authorities and putting them to open shame. My daughter... What did she need to know earlier this year as the teacher was leading the discussion about how horrible these Christians are and how much better off we'll be without them. She needed to remember the rulers and authorities have been put to public shame. That's where Paul goes if you keep reading Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, and you have been, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth, 
For you have died, and I love this bit, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. What do you need to do when you feel outnumbered? What do you need to do when it's just obvious you don't belong? What do you need to do when you feel like only you are left? You've got to remember where you live. You live in the world. And there's only one world, and that's God's world. This is the world God has conquered. This is the world God's own. And he's inviting you to look up. Because as much as you're here, through the power of the Spirit of God, you're there. You are there with the one. You are in him, with him. It's almost like you'll finally meet yourself when he returns. What do you do when you feel like you don't belong? You remember who you are. You are with Christ. And when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again we thank you for the witness of Elijah that at the word of your mouth, nothing except your plans will eventuate. Gracious Father, we thank you that just like you defeated Paul, you've defeated the rulers of this world. Thank you that you have triumphed in the cross. Thank you that you have forgiven us. And thank you that we are in you and with you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.